It's good to see you all again. We've had an enjoyable day in the Lord, and I hope that you have as well. If you have your Bible, would like to go back to Titus tonight, the epistle of Paul to Titus. We'll read this morning, or this evening, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Just in terms of the context, we have moved away from the introduction in this epistle and are now getting into the body of the letter. Apparently Paul had left, Paul was in Crete at one time and had established a church there and had begun to teach them the ways of Christianity. Apparently he had to leave sooner than he would like, so he left Titus in Crete to continue the work that he had started. This letter then is a follow-up letter a short time later to instruct Titus in exactly what he should do. The first thing that Titus was to do was to set in order the things that were wanting. To set in order the things that were wanting. The term wanting used here in this text means to lag, to be inferior, to lack, to fail. There are two areas that, from the, reading the epistle, you can infer what those two, the two areas that Paul was speaking of. And in general, they were doctrinal errors and practical errors. If you look at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, this witness is true, speaking of these deceiving Jews. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. So apparently there were some Jewish teachers that had come into these churches and were teaching some doctrine that Paul thought was errant. So the things that he wanted to, Titus to fix, one of them was the error in their doctrine. The other was the error in their practice, the things that they were doing, the way they were living. If you look at chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So a good part of the epistle is just a, just a, a listing of the things that Christians ought to be doing. And Lord willing, the next time we meet, we'll talk about the connection between doctrine and ethics. But these are the two general areas that the church in Crete, or the churches in Crete were lacking, that they were wanting. Now, when we think about these two areas, we think about these two, two um, broad categories of errors in the church, 
of the first century, what we find is that here in the 21st century, errors in churches haven't changed much. That although the, the times have changed, the basic problems are the same. Doctrinal errors and practical errors. Not much difference. We see in the book of Revelation a kind of a sweeping view of all the types of errors that I think the church would face over time in those seven churches and those seven letters to the seven churches. What I would like to do tonight is go and look at one church in particular and see if there's anything that we can learn as 21st century believers from this church. The errors of the first century, what can we learn from them? And I'd like to consider the church at Pergamos, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We know that all churches throughout time have two basic problems, doctrinal and practical. And there's a great relationship between those two. But the seven churches, the number seven in the Bible is many times a number that's used for fullness. So I believe in studying the seven churches that you can find just about every conceivable category of error or problem in churches regardless of the time. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against thee them with the sword of my mouth. So we're saying that the first century church had problems. The first century church was a church that was wanting, a church that was lacking, a church that was failing in some way. We also said that there's a connection between the believers of the first century and the believers of the 21st century, and their problems aren't much different from ours. So we go over to Revelation to look at the broad categories of errors, and we find this church at Pergamos. Now this church was a church that apparently lived... The Bible says where Satan's seat was. So apparently this must have been a wicked, wicked place in which they lived. Physically, where they were located was a really a, a, an extremely wicked place. And they had stood up against Satan and resisted him to the point of martyrdom. Even though they were in such a wicked place, there's no reason for any church to fail. Because even where Satan's seat is, a church was raised up that would allow itself to be martyred. So they, they were... They were having some success against this direct onslaught of Satan, even to the point that they were martyred. They weren't so successful, however, in dealing with the subtle deceptions of Satan. They took the direct onslaught, but when it came to something that was a little more subtle, they didn't have quite the success. Their sins were compared here to the sins of the Israelites at Baal Peor. Baal Peor. And you can find that in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 21 through 25. But essentially what happened there, Jesus is comparing what they're doing to what happened to the Israelites so many years ago. Essentially what happened was Balak, who was the king of the Moabites and a real enemy of Israel, tried to get Balaam to curse the Israelites. Do you remember that? He tried to get him to curse the Jews. And the Lord 
but despite Balak's efforts, wouldn't allow Balaam to curse the Jews. In fact, he pronounced a blessing upon them. But when his direct efforts didn't work, when he was trying to go at them head on, that didn't work. He tried to go in a little more subtle way. And so what he did was he caused the Moabitess women to seduce the Jewish men. And they were brought in to their sinful, sensual uh, Baal worship, their, their idol worship. So here these, these Jews had, had in one way resisted the direct attack of their enemy, but on the backside, when it was a little more subtle, they, didn't, they fell. The Lord's wrath was kindled upon them, and he sent a plague, and 24,000 of them were killed. So what uh, the Lord Jesus is doing here to this church is he's saying, look, you're just like them. Here you've got martyrs. You've stood up and you've taken the brunt of the attack, and now you've got this subtle deception moving in, the Nicolaitans and so on, and you're falling. The Christians at Pergamon had stood up against Satan, but had been allured into this same pagan, sensual worship. That's amazing to me, that you would have some in the church that would be martyrs and others in the church that would go so far away that they would go to the, to the, idol, um, the temples of the idol gods and, and carry on with the, the temple priests and priestesses in, in such a disgusting way. So the Lord's coming along here and he's saying, look, you've resisted the big, the big ploy, but here he's coming in with some subtle subtle device, and you're falling for it. We don't want to be those who are taken by Satan's subtle deceptions. We don't want to resist the big things and then just lose the war, the battle of the little things. We want to be smart. We want to be wiser than he is. I want to give you a specific example of a way that I think churches can be undermined, and that is by the music that we listen to. The music that we listen to. I love music. Dana, sometimes she gets on me. She says, can't we just have it quiet around here for a little while? I said, no, no, it's, I love music. I want to listen to it all the time. The Lord loves music. You know that? He loves music. There will be singing in heaven. There will be sounds in heaven, sweet sounds. The Lord loves music. But the fact of the matter is music can be a very deceptive device of Satan. Why? Well, it sounds so pleasing to the ear. Nice rhythm, nice beat. Most of the time, people who listen to bad music aren't even listening to the words. That finds that that uh, find that to be very interesting. But music can be a very clever way of Satan to infiltrate the church and get us thinking in a way that's ungodly. My point tonight is not to give you a list of that music that I think you should listen to and the music that I think you shouldn't listen to. Um, if I would, I'd say no country music, and then we'd move on to the next point. <laughs> That's not even a clever device. But the music that we listen to, what I'd like to do is just give you some questions to ask, some questions to ask about the music that you listen to that might help steer you in the right direction. Just three questions. Do the lyrics of this music promote ungodly thinking or living? The words, do they promote some kind of an ungodly idea, some ungodly way of thinking, of approaching life, or some ungodly way of acting or living? There's a, there's a little song that 
that um, is in one of the movies, one of the kids' movies. It's, I believe it's Aladdin. And one of the, 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 the central song of the whole thing is really an effort to get the young girl to disobey her parents and go off with the young boy. It sounds good. The video has beautiful colors, and, but without knowing it, we were, just in our case, we were letting Maddie listen to something that was teaching her to disobey me. Didn't even know it. Do the lyrics of this music promote ungodly thinking or living? Does the melody of this music seem fitting for the kingdom to which we have been called? The kingdom of God is a holy kingdom. It's a separate kingdom. It's different. It's not like everybody and everything else. It's different and it's holy. The particular thing I have in mind here is heavy metal Christian music or Christian rock. Now, I understand where we're going with that. I understand the thinking. The thinking is to meet people where they are. And I understand that. And there's a sense in which we have to meet people where they are. But we don't want to go so far as to dress up like the devil in order to meet somebody where they are. The thing that kind of turned my thinking on that was I was reading a book once talking about how Jesus presented himself when he was on the earth. You know, to uh, the first century culture, one of the dirtiest and nastiest occupations was that of a shepherd. He was dirty. He, had nowhere to, he didn't have anywhere to live. He wasn't very clean, probably didn't smell very good. He tended to sheep and to animals. In terms of the way uh, the social structure, a shepherd was the lowest form of occupation. And Jesus didn't come and say, I'm like Caesar, I'm a great king, or I'm like a great politician, or I'm like a really important person. He said, I'm a shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He only went so far to reach people. You see, I think our gospel's more powerful than needing the rudiments of the world to draw people in. It's the very contrast in the gospel message that makes it so appealing, is that it's something different. It's otherworldly. Does the melody of this music seem fitting for the kingdom to which we've been called? And then finally, would you want a fellow church member, your pastor, or Messiah, to know that you're listening to that particular music? For this cause... Left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So Paul sets forth that he is to, um, he's talking about the things that are wanting. He tells Titus that he is to set in order the things that are wanting, and to ordain elders in every city. Now, it's important to understand that Titus here was an elder as well. So Titus is an elder. Paul's telling Titus the elder to set, things, to set the things that are wanting in order and then to ordain other, order, other elders that they might set things in order that are wanting. Let's look at this phrase for a moment, set in order. Set in order. It's one word in Greek, but it's made up of a, a base, which is the word is called orthos, which means straight, erect, not crooked. So we get a number of words from this, this base, which will help us understand what Paul is meaning here. 
For example, we get the word orthodontist. Orthodontist from this. And that's a person who goes in and sets straight crooked teeth. And we also get the word um, orthopedics from this. One of the things that that, uh, is involved in that specialty is is a setting of broken bones. So you can see what Paul is getting here at is is that the elders have been given to set things straight that are broken. To take things that are crooked and make them line up. To take things that have been wrong and correct them. They are to identify, based on the word of God, what they see to be wrong. And then set about by his grace to make those things right. They are given for a good purpose, is my point. They are given, you're not a church full of elders, so there's no point in going into all the detail about that. But just to know that the elders have been given for a good purpose. And that is to maintain the health of the church, which you are included The point I'd like to make out of this is as follows. Seeing as how the elders are given for this good purpose, heed their words. Listen to what the elders have to say. You know, sometimes it can be a difficult thing to listen to the elders or the preachers. And I think it stems partly from the fact that they're just human. Um, They can, there can be things about them that we don't like. Things about them that we don't like. They might not say things the way we like them to be said. Or they might not uh, approach things the way that we like them to be approached. Or they might not, they might not use the, the phrases that we like. Or they might have a mannerism or some kind of an approach that we don't like. They can, uh, they can say things that we simply don't like. Something that we don't understand. I've said enough of those. Some things I listen to my own tapes and I don't even understand. But they might be saying things that we don't understand. Or they might say things that we don't agree with. And these things can cause us to resist the message that they have from the Lord. In spite of these difficulties, we're instructed to obey the elders. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 17. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. When he says here that they watch for your souls, the word watch literally means to stay awake. To stay awake. They stay awake to watch for your souls. And in this text, the reason that he gives that we should obey the elders, those that are appointed over us, is because they're going to be judged one day by the way you conduct yourself. That the elders will be called into account based on how you live. That's kind of a scary thing puts a lot of pressure on you. It also puts a lot of pressure on the preachers. They're going to be called into account for that. And he says at the end of this, for it is unprofitable for you that they would be called into account and not be able to account with joy. I wonder why that is. It's probably a couple of reasons. Number one, you don't want to see those that preach to you stand before Christ and have to give um, a bad account. But other than that, if they are going to be chided for your conduct... How much more you? 
when you actually face the Lord. It's not profitable. The Lord has given the elders, the preachers, to take care of the sheep, to keep them on the right path, to keep them on the path of righteousness, not to do you wrong, but to do you good. Now, at this point, I was thinking in my studies, I thought, I don't know what real point I would have in making this observation because I don't know of anybody who's resisting the, the word of the preached word. I don't know anybody who's, who is um, not heeding the word of the elders. And so I'm not implying that anyone is not heeding the word of the elders by bringing this up. What I'm simply saying is that I think the Lord wants me to bring it to your remembrance so that you would remember it. Many times I think it's true that he reminds us of things because someone is going to be tempted at some point soon to resist the teachings um, and the guidance of the elders. Now, the consequences of failing to heed the words of God's messengers are quite severe. They're serious and something that we should keep in mind. I have two for you tonight. One thing is, if you don't heed the word that comes through the ministry, the Lord may not keep you out of trouble. He may allow you to get yourself into trouble. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. Why is it important that we heed the words of those that God has set over us? The context here is that the Israelites, the Jews, are screaming for a king. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And the Lord is speaking to Samuel and telling Samuel what to tell the people. If they don't listen, what's going to happen to them? Verse 10, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. So Samuel's telling, he's bringing a message from the Lord to the people. And he's basically going to tell them what's going to happen if they get what they want. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them into his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have have chosen and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So the Lord's coming along and his people are asking him for something. And the Lord's coming along through his servant. He's saying, you don't want that. And let me tell you why you don't want that. Because it's going to be bad for you. How often do we do that? We come along and we say, Lord, I want this thing. I want it. The Lord comes along through someone, some messenger, some preacher, and says, you don't want that. This is why you don't want it. It's going to be bad for you. But sometimes we're just like the Jews. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. People come along and say, Lord, I don't care what you say. 
I don't care what your advice is. I don't care what your servant says. I, we want a king. We're going to have a king. And you know what happened? They got a king. And they got one just like the Lord said they would. And he ruled over them, and he was a bad king. If they had just waited, he would have given them David. But they wouldn't wait. So the Lord allowed them to have what they wanted because they wouldn't listen to his word through his servant. Another point to be made here, the second point I'd like to make, is that he may not get you out of trouble very quickly if you don't heed the words that he sends through his messenger. Proverbs chapter 1. The Lord is gracious and sends word and continues to exhort his people. But at some point, the lesson must be learned in another way. Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 23. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. The Lord is saying, I'm going to send you word. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you the right advice. I'm going to give you the right counsel. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not, all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. The Lord is saying, I sent my word, I sent my wisdom, and I told you. But you said it at naught, and so now I will also I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when you, your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. So the Lord comes along and he says, I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to give you my word. Now heed it. Listen to it. Soften your heart. Don't harden your heart. Hear what I have to say. Because I may just not deliver you from your troubles. I might let you live in them for a while if you don't heed the words of my messengers. Now let me make this point. Nobody's perfect. Nobody understands everything in the scripture. Nobody, we get confused sometimes. We, we're deceived sometimes. Sometimes we just mess up, don't we? And the Lord is gracious. As Thomas talked about this morning, he's pitiful towards us. And he doesn't have a, a, a hard, stone-cold hand. But we have to be careful that when he continues to give us wisdom, that we heed it. Because sometimes in his fatherly displeasure... He will allow us to fall in order that we might learn. So I exhort you tonight, if a preacher is speaking to you, and I mean just in general, the preached word is, pre- is speaking to you, hear it, because the elders have been given for your good. Verse 6, Titus chapter 1. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of right or unruly, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word he hath been taught, 
that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So Paul is here giving Titus some instruction. He says, I want you to set in order the things that are wanting, and I want you to ordain elders in every city. Then he comes along and he says, this, these are the qualifications of an elder. When you're looking for one, when you're going to appoint one, these are the qualifications that I want you to look for. And they really can break them down into two categories. First, he must be blameless. He must be blameless. Verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. And all these moral attributes, I think, just um, find their place in this term, blameless. The term blameless means that which cannot be called into account, unreproachable, unrebukable, unaccused. And then he goes on to list a laundry list of things that kind of make up this term. He's not going to be self-pleasing, not prone to anger, not drunken, not quarrelsome or greedy. He's going to be hospitable, a lover of goodness, self-controlled, and so on. So he must be blameless. He must be morally upright. And the second thing is, he must be loyal to the word. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. Now that is an awesome term there. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. This word also is made up of two words. One of them means over or against. Kind of implies leaning against something. And the other means to have or to hold. So when you combine these two, what you see... You remember this morning Thomas talked about the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth? What you see is a man who is leaning up against the pillar, holding the pillar up, and at the same time embracing the pillar and making sure it stands fast. He is both holding it up and holding to it. And this is what a preacher is supposed to do. He is supposed to come along and embrace the word, and he's also supposed to hold it up. Now, there's a very obvious implication here. This is where we're going to start to, to kind of work into those, those things that don't apply to elders. The implication is that if he's to push and hold the word up, And if he's to embrace it and hold on to it and hold fast to it, that he must necessarily know it. He's got to know the word. It can't just be something that he has a cosmetic understanding of. It has to be something that he is so involved with and is so involved in him that it becomes something of an experience for him. That he experiences the word. It's not just letters on a page, but it's an actual experience. And Paul goes on to give the reason, the reason for, for these two, two qualifications of an elder. One is that he would be holy, he would be blameless, and the other is that he would be one who was loyal to the truth and one who would know the truth. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that, that Greek word means it's a purpose clause. It means in order that, so that, to the end that, he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. He is supposed to have these two qualifications because without these, he can't really fight error. He can't fight error. You see, if he's not blameless, he'll be accused and no one will listen to him. If he doesn't know the word, if he doesn't experience the word, then he can't argue the word. So we find then a principle for all of us not just the elders, that if we're going to fight error in whatever form it takes, 
We must not only live a life that is unreproachable, that is blameless, but we have to know the word to the point that we experience it. It has to be more than just a passing kind of thing for us. Now let's talk about a specific application. I want to talk about fighting error in families. Fighting error in families. Really amongst children. You know, children are prone to errors of all sorts. Virtually every kind of error a child will commit by the time they're two and a half. I speak from experience. They are, are prone to just virtually every moral and um, mechanical and every other kind of error. You know, Asa, he's so funny. The kid, he just can't seem to learn how to get his shoes on right. He puts them on the wrong foot all the time and he loves it. So daddy has to come along and teach him, right? Well, parents are given by God to fight error in their children. They're given by God to come along and say, this is how you put these shoes on right. This is how you do right. This is how you live right. And I know so many, so many people, so many parents who try and approach parenting with only with one arm tied behind their back. They say something like, well, you know, I just, I need to set a good example. I'm just going to set a good example and then trust that everything's going to work out all right. Or they say, I'm just going to love them. Oh, I just love them. I'm just going to love them all that I can. And that and I'm just going to trust that everything else is going to just fall into place. But they never themselves have a real experience with Christ and his word. They, it's all kind of cosmetic. As long as you go to church on Sunday and you, and you carry on, and okay, then we just trust that our children are going to, to come out all right. But the sad part is some of these that I know, their, their efforts are cosmetic at best. And sometimes they're, they're the outcome is tragic. You know, there are many dangers facing a parent who tries to approach biblical parenting without really knowing the Word, without really experiencing the Word. I just thought I might give you a few of those tonight to kind of turn, turn your mind over on this subject. Why is it that it's dangerous to try to be a biblical parent without a personal, ongoing experience of the Bible and the Christ of the Bible? The first is the parent will be forced to give shallow religious advice instead of deep spiritual counsel. Why? Because there's simply nothing else to draw from. There's nothing else to say except the trite cliches of Christendom. Well, the Lord will provide. All things work together for good. Well, those are true and right. But isn't there more? Isn't there more that children need? And so what happens? They don't get the counsel they need from you. They go somewhere else to find it. They're forced to that because they don't have anything to draw from. The, their instruction will lack authority. Why is that? And there's a certain amount of authority that comes with just being a parent. Children, in some measure or another, find some authority with their parents. But it doesn't have God's authority. If we're not speaking God's words, we don't know God's words, and we're counseling our children with just whatever we can think of at the time, it lacks that power. That, that it needs. The, the parent's instruction will lack consistency. It won't be consistent. Why? Because the doctrines of men are always changing. You know, you know, you know have friends who you've known for years who aren't in the church or aren't heavily involved in, in the Bible. It seems like they're changing their mind as to what works every other week. 
You know, this works this week. Let's try this this week. You know, time out this week. And then next week, we're going to try this thing. And the next week, we're going to try this thing. So they don't have any consistency. What does a child do? Well, mom or dad, they just, they're just they off on some tangent again. Yeah, 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 I'll sit here for a minute, and then it'll be over in a week. Lacks consistency. It lacks a transforming moral power. See, there's no power in my words. There's no power in any parent's words. The only power is in God's word. And so the real changes that we want to see in our children, if we ourselves don't have a deep, a deep um, wellspring to draw from, we're not going to find that, that changing power in our words. Our, our words simply won't work. And then the final thing is this, and this is the one that's the most scary, and perhaps a, sum, a summary of all the others, that although the parent would offer their life for the child, they would lay down their life in a moment for the child. If, except they have this river of life to draw from, they can offer no real help to their children. In the final analysis, they can't help the one that they would die for because they don't have the right tools. I like to make a specific, go even, I'm going to just take this one level um, closer in the microscope. I like to just. Um, focus our attention on the importance of mothers having an ongoing relationship with Christ and his word. Mothers. Yesterday I had the wonderful blessing of, of keeping my kids, all three of them, for the afternoon. Dana had some shopping to do with her mother, and she had planned it, and so I stayed home with the kids from about 2.30 till the end of the day. And it became painfully aware to me how difficult it must be for a mother to seek Christ. I mean really seek him. Why? Because a mother has very, very little time. And this is true. This is true. I mean it's going from one diaper to the next or one child to the next or once lunch is ready, clean that up and get ready for the next. Homeschooling the kids, you know, praying with them, doing this thing for them, doing that thing for them. Their life is, is all, it's open and it's given away. But it makes it very difficult for mothers to have that quiet time with the Lord and to really seek Him in His Word. By the end of the day, the last thing that I, my flesh wanted to do was pray or read. You know, I'm just sitting there going, Danny, get home. I ain't got to go there. But can I encourage the mothers tonight? Can I encourage you, despite the difficulty, to keep pressing for that relationship with Christ? And the way I want to encourage you tonight is just briefly look at two success stories, two biblical success stories, to see the fruit that your children will bear if you can push forward and maintain a tight relationship with the Lord. Let's look firstly at Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Again, we're looking at the payoff. What is in it? You know, I don't think it's altogether a bad question in the right context to say, what's in it for me? <laughs> you know, the gospel is a gospel of what's in it for you. Jesus died for sinners. We don't mean to take his glory by that statement, but you follow me. Proverbs 31, we meet a very great man. We don't learn much about him. We learn some of the things that he knew. He was a king, Lemuel. And we learn some things that he that he knew, 
and the way that he carried on in his kingship. And I want you to notice the great things that he knew. Verse 3 of Proverbs 31. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Open thy mouth for the dumb and the cause of all, such as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. What the man understood was that he wasn't to give his strength away to drinking or to women, but he was to give as a king, he was to give himself over to doing that which is right, to, to judging for the poor, for helping the needy. Now you would think this man was taught by a great scholar. He was taught by someone, it had to have been a prophet or or. Um, some such as that. Some great man must have taught this person. Well, someone great taught this person, but it wasn't a man. Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Now you think about that for a moment. This woman might have been dead for years, and she didn't have any idea, perhaps, that God Almighty would use the thing that she taught her son and record it forever in his word. Now you think about that. What a great fruit was born from the fact that this woman knew Christ. The other place I'd like to go quickly is 2 Timothy. Timothy's another great man. Timothy's another great man. Why don't you think about Timothy for a minute? You know, we often think about Timothy being kind of shy, reserved, or kind of frail. You know, we t- tend to, to think about his, his um, failings, his, his, the places that he lacked. But the fact of the matter is that when God went to ordain the first Christian preachers, the very first ones after the apostles, Timothy was one of the very first ones he chose. Now, that is a great honor. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Timothy, I know you, and I know you've known the scriptures your whole life. And now God has come and he's ordained you. He set you apart. And you're one of the first pastors in the history of Christianity. Now, this man, he must have had a great father. He must have really taught him a lot. Or he must have been with the apostles a lot or something when he was young. I mean, how could a man be so great? Know the scriptures from his youth. Well, the fact is, his father was a Gentile and probably didn't teach him these things. Who did? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So here you've got Timothy, 
who is known from his youth, the Holy Scriptures, one of the very first pastors that God would ever call. And where did he get his knowledge of the Bible? From his mother. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's reason to press on, even as difficult as it is, to find a way to make time even if there's not time. And I encourage the fathers to make time for their wives, to be holy and separate. Make time for them to get away and get in a quiet place with the Lord. So let's review tonight. We first talked about not conforming ourselves to the world. We talked about considering the kind of music that we would listen to so they wouldn't fall prey to the deceptiveness of Satan. We said we should listen to the elders so that we can be kept from trouble. And we said that we should seek an ever-deepening relationship with Christ and his word, that we may be able to help our error-prone children. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for mothers. We thank you for elders. Thank you for men like Titus and Timothy and Paul. We thank you for the word of God. It gives us the right instruction no matter what the occasion. I pray to you, Lord, that you would strengthen the mothers in our flock, that you would give the fathers wisdom and opportunity to help their wives have time to seek you in private. I pray, Lord, that you would protect our church, that you would give us wisdom, that we wouldn't fall prey to the deceptive tactics of Satan, that you would protect us even in that way, Lord, that we might be a bright and shining light. Bless us this week to remember the things that have been said on this day and to follow you no matter where you lead us. In the name of Christ, amen.